Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Father, as we contemplate these words of Christ, we pray that you would apply them to our hearts and that you would open our minds to what you have us to receive. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I grew up in a southern church. For those of you who never had the privilege, I just want to explain that in the southern church, we do things a little bit differently. Uh, Sermons are more interactive than they tend to be up here, uh, certainly in in Presbyterian churches. It's not unusual for people in the audience to yell at the preacher. I know, right. I know you've often felt like yelling at the preacher, but these aren't like, like, Angry words, these are words of encouragement, like amen, or occasionally if it seems like there's a hard subject that the preacher has to approach, and maybe he seems like he's trying to be polite and considerate to others, you might not have much patience with that. You might want to yell, come on, like you're pulling the words out of him, you know? If he goes to something that's really awkward, if we start talking about something that we wouldn't choose to talk about in polite company, Rather than being embarrassed and silent, you want to yell something like, preach it, because that makes it seem like you're on board. Like whatever the sin is that's being called out, you're untainted, because otherwise you wouldn't yell like that. Now, in a text like the one that we just read in the Southern Church, there'd be a lot of preachets in this text, because there's a lot of words here that if we start thinking about them, bring us under condemnation. Those preachets usually die out about halfway through, when uh, you're not able to form sounds from your mouth because it's gone so dry. Maybe when we look at a text like this, uh, Southern Church is not our inspiration. Maybe Monty Python has it right. We hear this and we wanted to say, skip a bit, brother. Let's move on. Let's not dwell on these awkward things. Let's do the murder one again. I found that really interesting, very convicting, But could we skip ahead now? Not so much. Not so much. I realize it's an epic pastoral fail to preach on adultery and divorce when tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Uh, I don't choose how the text is arranged and how it falls out, but you would think I could have done something to avoid this happening. But, But I find that when I fail to avoid these awkward things, sometimes... Christ has a reason for giving us what he gives us when he gives it to us. I think we need to trust in him that this is not only a text that we need to think about, but the time that we need to consider it. 
But I have a little romance for you. I'm going to talk about marriage a little bit. I'm going to talk about the first marriage, the marriage between Adam and Eve. We think about Adam and Eve oftentimes as abstractions. Like they're the ones from whom a lot of important doctrines flow. Original sin, that's, that's good. That comes from our first parents, Adam and Eve. But we don't often think about Adam and Eve as people. We don't often reflect on what their relationship was like. And yet, because they were people just like us, I'm sure there were a lot of similarities. And you think about falling in love. You think about uh, uh, searching for the person who is right for you and the questions that are often in your mind. Uh, how do you know it's love? How do I know that she's the right one? The way people answer these questions are interesting. Sometimes when you're really convinced, you really think, yeah, I know, I have found the, the right person for me. You might even say, she was made for me. You mean it metaphorically. In Adam's case, it wasn't a metaphor. You think about the relationship dynamics of Adam and Eve. She was made for him. Here's a guy who couldn't have had any anxiety over whether he'd found the right person. God fixed it up. And there weren't a lot of options. She was made to be the right companion for him, and he was not whole without her. And we talk about that stuff, and we don't think about the implications personally. Like, imagine you were in that kind of relationship without any anxiety over whether you'd gotten the right one, because you knew that he or she was the right one. You knew that it was meant to be. And there could be no question of their love for you. Their faithfulness. Because here you are in the garden, everything's perfect. Like you're literally day in and day out living what we imagine the getaway vacation for us will be like, but it never is. But that's their reality in the garden before sin. And you think about what that would be like just to have that for a little bit. Like imagine what a, a, a recipe for like marriage renewal it would be to have a day in the garden and live like Adam and Eve did. And if you think about that, you can start to appreciate what was lost as a result of sin. I know a lot of big cosmic things were lost as a result of sin. And we can talk about the way that the relationship between God and humanity was broken because of sin. Between human beings and one another was broken. And even the relationship between ourselves and our hearts was broken. But this was a marriage that was broken because of sin. It changed forever. All the security that had once been there was never there again. And Adam went from knowing she was the one and knowing that she was made for him to being in a situation where even to look at another woman with lust in his heart was a sin, was, was infidelity. Into a relationship of perfect fidelity, sin brought unfaithfulness. And it's been that way ever since. All of our relationships aspire to that garden state, that, that blissful, perfect security and faithfulness that we dream of, that we talk about, but none of them has ever attained to it. All of us have had this other kind of relationship, a combination of those dreams of perfect faithfulness and the reality of something less, often far less. We come together, even now, we take Marriage vows intending to fulfill them, intending to be faithful, with every intention of keeping them, but in our hearts, it's another way. 
we have unfaithful hearts and we carry them with us day by day. And that's not just a theological truth. That's a tragedy. The reality of the heart, as Jesus reveals it here, is a tragedy that we live with day by day. Now imagine for a moment that you're a Pharisee and you're listening to the Sermon on the Mount. You're tracking with Jesus and you're trying to follow him as far as you can. And you already got through the murder thing and that was weird and awkward because you had had this idea that as long as you didn't kill anybody, you were good. And now Jesus says, you can't even have this anger. You can't go around insulting people. You can't go around calling them fools. But as you reflect on that, you think, you know what? I get it. I get it. What he's saying is I shouldn't act on these feelings that I have. That, that It's not just that I shouldn't act in a big way and murder people I'm mad at, but I shouldn't even insult them. I shouldn't even treat them badly because of this feeling I have. Instead, I need to channel the Apostle Paul and be angry but do not sin. I think I could do that. I go through life in a sort of zen-like state of just letting it all roll off of me like water on a duck's back. Maybe I wouldn't have to act on my feelings and I would be righteous. And then Jesus says, so let's talk about the seventh commandment and those feelings. And it turns out, even without acting upon them. Here, the, the, the action is looking with lustful intent, that even that is enough to violate the seventh commandment. Even that is enough to qualify as unfaithfulness. And once again, Jesus brings it home to us. The line is not out there, it's in here. As long as you're policing your actions and just thinking, it's okay to feel what I feel as long as I don't put it out there, then I will be righteous. Jesus is saying, no, the corruption is in there. The unfaithfulness that matters more than anything is the unfaithfulness of your hearts. So once again, he gives us this antithetical structure. He states a thesis. He gives us an antithesis in contrast. The thesis is more or less the seventh commandment. We're looking at two antitheses because they're connected. So we're looking at verses 27 through 30, which is about uh, violating the seventh commandment, and then looking at 31 and 32, which is on divorce. The reason they're connected is that the consequences are the same. In both cases, Jesus is talking about what it takes to be guilty of adultery, what it takes to violate the commandments. But the two different Antitheses have kind of, let's say, two different focuses. We learn two different things from them. So in the first instance, Jesus basically does to the seventh commandment what he's already done to the sixth commandment. He shifts the line from the outward action to the interior of the heart. Now we're talking about lustful intent of the heart being enough, even if it's not acted upon. Jesus is saying, essentially, if you think you can go through life Believing you can look, but not touch, and still be righteous, you're absolutely wrong. You are mistaken. Faithfulness, not just a question of action, the question of desire. A question of desire. Corrupt desire is also unfaithfulness. Not just corrupt action, but corrupt desire is unfaithfulness. Then the second antithesis on divorce, he expands this question considering the practices of divorce. And here, the idea is whether or not it's possible 
for a righteous man to essentially act on the lust of his heart, but, but, but have legal cover for it. Like, sure, there are a lot of adulterous people who go out and they just hook up with whoever they want to hook up with. I don't do that. I get all the paperwork in order first. Like, I file the forms that Moses said to file so that my actions are justified. That's the idea. A self-righteous heart. Is there a way for me to follow the passions of my heart and not be condemned? And Jesus is saying, no, not at all. Now, both of these points are points Jesus is going to return to later in uh, Matthew 18 and 19. So have fun. We're going to see these things again and get to talk about them more. But for now, I want you to see the connection. The question is, how do I avoid violating this commandment, being found guilty of unfaithfulness? And Jesus is saying, in order to do that, you would have to basically change your heart, uncorrupt your desires. And no provision in the law, no technicality, will allow you to have cover for those corrupt desires. And Jesus, between these two antitheses, plugs in a little practical application. We got practical application last time. If you're harboring anger, don't just go through the motions of religious observance. Reconcile yourself. Confess that anger. Here we get some more application. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Is Jesus speaking literally here or metaphorically? It's funny how we ask those questions of some texts and not others. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. Does he mean that literally or does he mean it metaphorically? And we can have a great conversation about that. Pluck out your eye, chop off your hand. Oh, he means that metaphorically, clearly. And you couldn't possibly mean that because it would be a little excessive. It would be extreme given the offense, like as a remedy. Like I, I get if it was, uh, if you murder someone, then your life is forfeit. And maybe we could say like, if you, do something really bad with your hand. I don't know, like like slap your brother when you call him fool. Then maybe uh, they would cut your hand off. It would seem harsh, but but at least there's a logic to it. But to look with lustful intent and for the remedy to that to be, oh, well, you should gouge that eye out. That would be better, Jesus says, than for your whole body to be cast into the fire. When Jesus says things like this, it becomes immediately clear that his system of values is completely out of step with ours. Because nobody here reads that and thinks that sounds like a reasonable response. To us, it sounds extreme. Why would he say this? He says this because to him, it's exactly right. That what you're doing, that what you're turning, sorry, a blind eye to, in this instance, is the thing that will destroy you. And it would literally be better for you not to be able to see than for your sight to be an occasion for your condemnation, for your whole body to be destroyed. That's how serious this is. So again, something that we're likely to brush aside, the lust of the heart, the intentions of the heart, they're never manifested, they don't hurt anybody, what's the harm? Something that you're likely to think is excused because you went about it the right way, I got all the paperwork filed, everything was in order, it was all done properly, And Jesus says, no, you're thinking about this all wrong. You should be thinking more in terms of self-mutilation to avoid destruction. Clearly, he's getting our attention with this language. 
He's waking us up to the seriousness of our complacency. It seems obvious to you that it's better to have the offending body part than it is to lose it. But Jesus is saying it's better to sacrifice in part than to lose the whole. And that's thinking rationally. That's ordering priorities correctly. The sin that we turn a blind eye to will cost us everything. The sinful intent of the heart is enough to condemn us, which means an extreme sacrifice like he's describing is justified by the circumstances. It actually makes sense. As you process all of that, I want to talk about the way that we often react to talk about sin like this. When Jesus draws the line so harshly, we see this, and we tend to react the way we'll see the disciples reacting in Matthew 19. When Jesus lays all this stuff out again, he talks about uh, the way things were in the garden versus the way things became in the law as an accommodation to the hardness of human hearts. The response of the disciples is interesting. They don't hear what Jesus says and think, well, I guess we need to start taking faithfulness more seriously. Their response is, well, I guess it's better not to get married. If it's this hard, maybe you shouldn't do it in the first place. In other words, despair. When Jesus tells them how high the standard is, their natural reaction is to think maybe we shouldn't go there at all. Maybe we shouldn't even try. That's a form of honesty. But it's also a tragic form of honesty. Like to give up on something so good and so rewarding because of the difficulty of faithfulness. Accepting sin as inevitable. We all do it. The error is human. We tell ourselves this is normal. It's unavoidable. But remember two things. As we contemplate what Jesus is doing here, remember first that the way Jesus teaches the law is designed to increase the trespass. The reason he's making it seem so hard to be righteous is that it is. Like that literally, according to the law, you cannot be righteous. And you need to understand that because the temptation is to think you can do it by lowering the standard, by not following things to their their logical outcome. You can convince yourself that maybe you're not perfect, but you're good enough, and that will destroy you. And so Jesus wants to make it really clear that law-keeping is not an option, that law-keeping will not result in you being righteous. Your only hope is grace. So when you hear him saying these things, the thing to take away is not, well, all right, I guess I better give up. The thing to take away first and foremost is I need Christ. I need his grace. Nothing else will save me but him. Remember this too, even though in this life, sinless perfection is not a possibility, the gift of the Holy Spirit does sanctify. We are in the Spirit given power over sin, power over the desires that we have been subject to. We have the power to bring our desires into submission. We should take that seriously. So as we reflect on Christ's words about faithfulness and our own unfaithfulness, what should we do? First, examine yourself in light of this teaching and admit your own unfaithfulness. Admit your own unfaithfulness. Confess it. You've made vows. 
whether you've broken them through your actions or not, you have broken them in your heart. Every vow you've taken, every commitment you've made, you have failed to keep perfectly. And clearly that's the standard. Confess it, admit it. The worst thing you can be is in denial, trying to pretend that things are other than they are. Admit it. Be done with that denial and be thrown upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Be reminded of what the gift of grace actually means. Because the more you realize your own unfaithfulness, the more grateful you will be for the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Here's another thing you should do. Where others have been unfaithful to you, strive to forgive. Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is a hard teaching. When you come into the presence of God, when you pray before him, forgive. We confess our sins. We ask God for forgiveness. But Jesus says, in addition to doing that, give forgiveness. Give forgiveness. Forgive those who have been unfaithful to you. Forgive those who have broken their vows to you. And I realize in saying that, that's a hard thing to do. I wouldn't say it at all if Jesus hadn't said it. Because I find it difficult as well. But the logic of it is clear. We are people who need forgiveness. We desire to be forgiven. And so we forgive. We do unto others as we would have done to us. We ask God to forgive our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. Another thing to reflect on, don't assume that your sinful desires are who you are. That's a kind of despair. To look at the sin in my heart, the corrupt desires of my heart, and to find in them my identity, to find that that is who I am, is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. Paul says in Romans 7, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And that's a famously complex passage. And Paul is saying a lot of things in that passage. But one thing clearly that he's saying is that he sees a difference between the sin in him and himself. That his sense of identity, his foundation of who he is, is not built on the desires of his heart, the corruption that he finds within him. Now, one of the facets of our culture, the culture that has shaped all of us is the way that we have redefined questions that the Bible treats as sexual ethics as if they were matters of identity. There is an irony in this. People accuse Christians of being obsessed with sex, but it took post-Christian culture to center sex at the heart of human identity in the way that we do. But when the Apostle Paul talks about this, that's all wrong. We looked at this passage in Sunday school this morning, but in Ephesians 2, when he describes our condition prior to the entry of the gospel, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived. And here's how he describes that living. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. If we accept that our sin is who we are, essentially we return back to that way of living, the way that we live as children of wrath, satisfying our passions, the desires of our hearts, which Jesus says are enough to condemn us. Well, that means if you're coming to this question with what we might call like a cultural lens on it, trying to think about all this stuff the way we think about these things these days, there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen in order to see these questions the way the Bible sees them. That unlearning is part of our sanctification. It's part of our liberation from captivity to our unfaithful hearts. Here's the last thing to reflect on. It's easy, as we said before, to look at the Sermon on the Mount and and to take from this a sort of moralistic, here's the stuff I need to work on message. But I think as we reflect on this passage, there is actually something more for us here than that, as important as that can be. Jesus here is doing something interesting. It's like he's painting a self-portrait, but he's doing it in negative. He's painting a representation of himself and who he is and what he will do, but he's doing it essentially by, by marking off the opposite so that we see a sort of reverse image of who he is. You reflect on the corruption, on the unfaithfulness, the condemnation in this text. Think about the opposite of those things, and a picture of Christ begins to emerge. Whenever Jesus tells us how bad we are, he's also telling us how good he will be for us. In Matthew 5, he's basically painting that self-portrait. He's showing us what he will be to us and for us by showing us what we have failed to be. You're a murderer, he says, but Christ is the giver of life. You're an adulterer, he says, but Christ is faithful and the source of faithfulness. We can see this even in the details of what we read here. If even lustful intent in the heart is unfaithfulness, then consider how perfect the faithfulness of Christ must be. It's not just that he's faithful to us in his action, but that in every intent of his heart, his love is for us always and holy. There is no part of him that he holds back from us. There is no part of him which he doesn't give to us completely. Every intent of his heart is committed to you. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful. Even when you think about the extreme remedies that Jesus talks about, there's a lesson here. If the whole body can only be saved through an unimaginably extreme sacrifice, isn't that precisely what Jesus does? We contemplate the idea of, of losing an eye to save the body, losing a hand to save the body, and it's unthinkable. But Jesus sacrifices his whole body so that the whole body of Christ might live. He literally does the thing that he prefigures here only to a much greater extent. If a sacrifice is required, 
that we might not be thrown into the fire. Jesus makes it completely. If unfaithfulness is grounds for divorce, and it is, you see it in the text here, Jesus doesn't say all divorce is, is off the table. He makes an allowance for certain cases. But if that's the case, if because of immorality, I would be justified in seeking divorce, wouldn't he be justified in getting rid of us? Doesn't he have all the rationale necessary to file the papers? I tried to make it work with these people. They were unfaithful. I think I'm going to find a new people. And yet that's not what he does. He doesn't get rid of us. Instead, he remains faithful to us. Paul sings in 2 Timothy 2.15, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. There is, in other words, no hardness of heart in Christ. He's going to explain later the reason why the law makes these accommodations is because your hearts are hardened by sin. Sometimes the law doesn't outline perfection. Sometimes it just regulates imperfection. This is one of those cases. But in the case of Christ, even when he would be justified in withdrawing from us, he stays with us. He remains faithful. Of course, when Jesus teaches on this subject, he goes back to the garden. He goes back to marriage as a creation ordinance, the way things were before the fall, the way things were meant to be before they were corrupted by sin, before our hearts were hardened, before there was this burden of unfaithfulness upon us. I think one of the reasons why Jesus is so much of a stickler, let's say, for an ideal understanding of marriage is because it's that picture of perfect faithfulness in marriage that is the basis for understanding his relationship to his church. As Paul says, as he speaks about marriage, I'm speaking, of course, of Christ and the church. So it's no wonder that in the way that Jesus approaches marriage, he approaches it with that in mind, as a picture of himself, as a picture of his faithfulness. Which means that he can bring hope to our broken relationships because he has restored the broken relationship between himself and us. There is distance between God and man, between human beings, one and another, between ourselves and our hearts. Jesus has the power to heal and to bridge that distance because that's who he is. He is our faithful bridegroom. And where we have failed in our faithfulness, don't despair. You've been unfaithful. Confess your sin. You've been unfaithful. Receive Christ's pardon. You've been unfaithful. So pray for strength to keep faith with Christ. Your unfaithful heart is being renewed. So strive for faithfulness in Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.